this is Penny Johnson, and you're listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In this episode, we continue with Geraldine Farr, The Story of an American Singer, written by Geraldine Farr and published in 1916 by Houghton Mifflin Company. Chapter 8 Imperial Encouragement It was not until my second season at the Royal Opera that I saw or met the Kaiser. The court had been in half-mourning during my first season, and members of the royal family had not visited the opera house. In January 1903, the middle of my second season, a Hofmarschall from the palace presented himself at our apartment and officially commanded my presence at the palace that night. I was notified that I must wear the prescribed court dress, either lavender or black, with gloves and no jewellery. The Hofmarschall, having delivered his message, was about to depart when I called him back. "'I'm very sorry,' I said meekly, "'but I never wear black, and I never wear lavender. Neither colour is becoming to me.' "'But it is the custom of the court,' he began. "'It is my custom,' I replied firmly, "'to wear what I choose when I sing, and according to my mood, and I choose to wear white. Furthermore, I never wear gloves while singing.' The Hofmarschall was greatly disturbed. He was afraid it would be impossible for me to be received at the palace unless I conformed to the usual requirements. However, he would see. I would be notified. And later that afternoon came the message that Miss Farr could wear whatever she desired, but she must come. I wore white. My mother and I drove to the palace together, we were formally received by various flunkies and under-attaches, and finally escorted up the magnificent staircase to the reception room just off the White Hall, where the Kaiser and the Kaiserin were with the diplomatic corps after dinner. At the proper moment I was announced. After I had sung and had responded to an encore, the Kaiser arose from his place and congratulated me. He then turned and shook hands with my mother, after which we were led to the Kaiserin and formally presented to her. In turn we were made acquainted with the various notables present. That meeting was the forerunner of many pleasant social gatherings at the palace, when mother and I were honoured guests. His Majesty was exceedingly kind to us, and seemed to like to hear me sing. It was on the occasion of one of these visits to the palace that I met the crown prince for the first time. He had been away at school at Bonn, and came in one evening with several of his brothers. I was naturally interested in the personality of the heir to the throne, and spoke to him at some length. I liked him at once, and found him very gay and sympathetic. One night at the opera he sat in the royal box, and between the acts, so I was told, wished to come behind the scenes to speak to me. 
the rule against visitors, is rigidly enforced at the royal opera, and his highness was so informed. He thereupon returned to the royal box. After the performance he again made an effort to call behind the scenes, but was not permitted. However, later that same evening he sent me a hastily scribbled message, written upon a card showing the palace gardens, reading, "'You played very well to-night.' Wilhelm. I still have the card. About this time I first met Madame Lily Lehmann, to whose far-reaching influence I attribute much of the success which has come to me. I felt the need of the careful instruction of a master. Of course, the idol of music-loving Germany was then, as now, Lily Lehmann, I wrote to her, asking if I could sing for her, with the idea of becoming her pupil. There was no answer. Lily, with her extensive correspondence and active life, was probably too busy to consider such a matter as a new pupil. Then my mother wrote. In reply came a very concise and business-like communication. Yes, Lily had received the letter from me, but, owing to my eccentric handwriting— had been unable to decipher it. My mother's penmanship was clearer, and so Lily wrote that she would be willing to hear me sing, without promising to accept me as her pupil, however. An appointment was made for us to call at half-past nine o'clock in the morning at her home in Grunewald, half an hour's ride from Berlin, and, though the day was cold and wintry, my mother and I were there promptly on time. Beautiful Lily Lehmann, stately and serene as a queen, with a wonderful personality which seemed naturally to dominate every presence in the room, past the meridian of life, yet with an unbroken record of world achievement behind her, greatest living exponent of Mozart, of Brahms, of Liszt, of Wagner. What more can I say of her than that I approached her with the deference and respect which were her due? I was an eager and humble beginner, she of another generation. My desire to secure her as my instructor seemed almost presumptuous. Yet, after hearing me sing, Lily kindly consented to take me, and I am happy and proud to state that I have been her pupil at all times since that first meeting. Lily insisted that I should essay one Wagnerian role, under her direction, I studied Elizabeth in Tannhäuser, and the night I made my first appearance in this role in Berlin was a memorable occasion for both of us. The entire royal family was present, and Lily sat in a loge with my mother. I should explain that Lily, who had been a notable member of the Royal Opera for many years prior to her American successes, had had differences with the direction of the Royal Opera during the years of her tremendous popularity in America, and had followed her own sweet will by remaining here several seasons without receiving the necessary permission from the intendant to do so. As a result, upon her return to Germany, she had not been summoned to resume her roles at the Royal Opera. This condition of affairs, I believe, had existed for some time, Lily, with the pride and independence of a great artist, scorning to make the first advances leading to her return. 
On the night of my appearance, says Elizabeth, after I had scored a really great success, the Kaiser summoned me to the royal box to congratulate me. He knew that I had studied the role under Lily's direction. He therefore summoned Lily as well, complimented her upon her pupil's achievement, and then and there requested her to sing as guest artist at the Royal Opera, which she did a few weeks later. It was a great and happy night for me, and I believe for Lily also. Dimly connected with this period, I remember various young gentlemen showing me attentions. There was a baron, who mysteriously sent gifts concealed in flowers, with very charming poems written about the difficult roles I was playing. It was some time before I found out who he was, and could return his trinkets, with the request that he cease sending presents to me. However, he continued to write me pathetic letters for several years afterward. But I was thrilled and enthusiastic over my career, and had no serious thoughts for love-making or matrimony. I wished to devote all my time and energy to my work. But no artist can hope to escape permanently the evil tongue and jealousy of those who envy her the success she has won. Thus it happened that the sudden interest in grand opera manifested by the crown prince was made the baseless pretext of a wild rumor of the romantic attachment of the youthful heir for a certain American prima donna singing at the Royal Opera. As I happened to be the only prima donna to conform to the description, I was the unconscious victim of many canards. The truth of the matter is that the crown prince, just out of college, fond of music at all times, was enjoying his first season of opera. That I happened to be the only young prima donna at the opera house may be one reason why he attended every time I sang and ignored other performances. At any rate, it annoyed the other singers greatly, but it created no end of interest in my performances and in no way disturbed my equanimity. I felt it was all part of the career. I was young, triumphant, happy in my singing, and making rapid strides toward an international reputation, and at the back of my brain was written, with determination, the ultimate goal, the Metropolitan Opera House at New York. So I pursued my studies with zest and unabated enthusiasm. Soon afterward I realized from vague storm clouds and distant mutterings that trouble was brewing. Certain minor officials of the Royal Opera put their heads together with certain singers. Rumors that too much attention was paid to the American singer by royalty were printed in one of the papers, whereupon my father, remember he was once a ball player and is still a great athlete, retaliated by a physical reminder to one editor that such slanders are not circulated with impunity about young American women. The press caught the romance of the situation, and highly colored stories were the result. The climax of a series of petty annoyances came one night when my mother was denied permission to accompany me behind the scenes, as she had been doing at every performance for almost two years. In my anger at these sensational reports, and at the sudden discourtesy to my mother at the opera house, I determined to write to the Kaiser a personal letter of explanation. This letter was entrusted 
to my devoted friend, Herr von Rath, to be delivered by him personally to the Hofmarschall, who would see that it reached the Kaiser. Those well-wishers, who had been freely predicting that I would soon be requested to resign and go over the border because of the rumors regarding the crown prince, one newspaper even asserted that he wished to relinquish his right to the succession to the throne in order to marry the American singer, were soon thrown into consternation when one of the royal carriages stopped in front of my door to bring official notification from the Kaiser that he had ordered, restored, to my mother the privilege of accompanying me at any time behind the scenes at the Royal Opera. The envious tongues stopped wagging. Official Berlin society took its cue. It was understood that I was not to leave Germany. I determined that since Berlin had been the city first to take me to its heart, Berlin should be my parent house. From there I might try to reach out for other worlds to conquer, but Berlin should be my base for an international career. And so firmly did I adhere to this decision that, when my first contract with the Royal Opera expired, I renewed it again and again, with special permission from His Majesty, for my European and subsequent American arrangements. You've been listening to From Stage to Page, an audiobook podcast devoted to the forgotten stories and memoirs of female performing artists from the late 19th and early 20th centuries. If you like what you hear and want to support my creative endeavors, then simply go to ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson and you can buy me a lemonade. That's ko-fi.com slash Penny Johnson. Thanks for your support.